Well, good morning, First Baptist Church, and it is always a joy to be here. Love your pastor and his wife, and I love this church that uh, prays for and supports Southeastern Seminary so wonderfully well. Let me encourage you to return to the book of Jonah, chapter 1. And as your pastor noted, I'm going to try to cover all four chapters and 48 verses this morning. That means I will talk rapidly, and you will listen in a hurry, and we will get through in a timely manner. I'm a huge fan of missionary biographies. I wish I had been more faithful to read missionary biographies to my four sons when they were small because I find such encouragement from the men and women, very normal people like you and me, and yet God used them in extraordinary ways. One of my missionary heroes is a man by the name of Henry Martin. Henry Martin was a genius. He went to India, was on his way to Persia, had translated the Bible in multiple languages in a very short time in India, had done the same thing for the Persian people, and yet God in His mysterious providence took him at the age of 31. Henry Martin, though, was a prolific journaler, and in that journal he made this striking statement, the Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of missions. The nearer we get to Jesus, the more intensely missionary we become. And yet there's an amazing thing. You can be a believer who is orthodox, evangelical, have walked with God for decades. Why, you could even be someone called to a unique vocation, and yet in your life and in your heart, you drift away and get distracted from the mission of God, which is near to the heart of Jesus. How do we know that? The book of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet. And as we walk through these four chapters, we will discover Jonah had no problems in his head. He knew the Word of God thoroughly. He believed in orthodoxy. And yet Jonah's heart was far from the Lord. Now, as we walk through these four chapters, I'm going to extract a single truth from each one that we will build our study around, four truths that are simple to remember, and I pray truths that God will plant in all of our hearts this morning. Truth number one in chapter one, you can run, but you cannot hide from the Lord. You can run, but you can't hide from the Lord. Now, Adam and Eve discovered that in Genesis chapter 3, as they tried to hide from the Lord. Jonah not only tried to hide from the Lord, he tried foolishly to run from the Lord as well. The Word of the Lord came to Jonah saying, and you'll note there are three imperatives, words of command that God delivers to Jonah there in chapter 1. Arise, go, and call out. God is not asking or suggesting. God commands Jonah to obey His Word. And he is told to go to Nineveh, described as a great city, but a city that was indeed great in its evil. Nineveh, by the way, was the most important city of the Assyrian Empire. It was the evil empire of the day. They were wicked. uh, They were ruthless. They did terrible, terrible things when they would conquer a people. And yet, even though they were unbelievably evil and wicked, God cared for them. God loved them. So God calls upon His prophet to go and to take His message to the Ninevites. Now, you would expect in verse 3 that we would read, And Jonah arose and obeyed 
the word of the Lord. But that's not what we read. Jonah rose, and what did he rise to do? To flee uh, to a place called Tarsus, most likely a a seacoast city on the western coast of Spain. And note the phrase, from the presence of the Lord. You'll see it twice there in verse 3, and you'll see it a third time in verse 10 as well. And so God basically says to Jonah, I want you to go north uh, east by land to Nineveh. Jonah says, thank you very much. I will go west by sea as far away from Nineveh as I possibly can go. Now, that raises a million-dollar question. Why did Jonah run from the will of the Lord? Why did Jonah not want to go and preach to Nineveh? Well, John MacArthur, uh, in commenting on the book of Jonah, said the simple truth is Jonah was a racist. Jonah was a bigot. Jonah was a nationalist. Jonah was proud of his Hebrew heritage. He was proud of the fact that he was not like the evil, wicked Ninevites and Assyrians. And yet, I also think Jonah read the signs of the time. Jonah knew that Israel was becoming increasingly rebellious and wicked in terms of their walk with the Lord. And he saw this massive, growing empire to the north, and he knew, he suspected, that they might indeed be the chastening hand of God against Israel. And by the way, that's exactly what happened in 722. Syria will sweep down from the north, come in and basically wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel. And so when God hears that it may be, or Jonah hears that God may indeed, instead of delivering Nineveh, might destroy Nineveh, he says, I'll tell you one thing, I am not about to lift a finger to stop that from happening. And like a fool, He tries to run away from the omnipresent God. Well, we discover in verse 4 that doesn't happen. The Lord hurled, as he goes to the sea in the ship, hurled a great wind. By the way, the word great occurs no less than 14 times in these four chapters. God is always doing something great in very different ways, by the way, but always doing great things in the book of Jonah. So he hurled not just a typical wind, but a great wind upon the sea. And there was a literally great tempest on the sea, so great that the sea threatened to break. Well, the mariners, verse 5, were afraid this was not any normal storm. Uh, This was not anything they had ever experienced in their past. And so they began to do two things, pray and work, which is not, by the way, a bad combination. First of all, they began to cry out to their gods. And furthermore, they hurled the cargo from the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But in contrast to the mariners who are praying, to the mariners who are working, Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship. He had lain down and he was fast asleep. The world is going to hell in a handbasket, but God's prophet is completely oblivious to what actually is transpiring around him. Well, God sends a Gentile, the captain, to confront his wayward prophet. Verse 6, the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? And look at the two words that appear, words that Jonah had been uh, given by God 
back up in verse 2. Now on the lips of a captain, arise, call out to your particular God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Well, evidently, things did not get any better. And so in verse 7, they take a different course and they said, well, I tell you what, come and let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. By the way, if you're a note taker, right beside verse 7, Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 33. Because the Bible says there that we cast the lot into the lap, but every decision is determined by the Lord. So they cast lots, and sure enough, the lots fell on the Baptist preacher. The lots fell. I don't know if he was a Baptist or not. He's acting like a Baptist. But anyway, that's another sermon for another day. The lots fell, and of course they fell on Jonah. Well, now it's time for an interrogation. So they put Jonah, if you like, in the dock, and they begin to pepper him with a series of questions, five altogether. Number one, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. Question number two, what is your occupation? Question number three, where do you come from? Question number four, what is your country? And question number five, of what people are you? And this is amazing to me. Jonah basically answers four of the five questions. The one question he does not answer is, what is your occupation? Because Jonah at this particular moment did not want to own up that he was a prophet of the one true and living God. But he at least answered these questions in verse 9. Jonah said, first of all, I'm a Hebrew. And secondly, and I'm not going to throw a lot of Hebrew at you, but this is instructive. I fear Yahweh, the Elohim of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He gives to these Gentile mariners the, perf- uh, the, the, the personal covenantal name of the Hebrew God, Yahweh the Lord. And he is indeed the Elohim, the great God of heaven. And he made not only the sea, he made the dry land as well. Now, this is what's important here. In the ancient world, among the pantheon of gods, they really had no concept of a God who was omnipresent. Uh, Their gods were local tribal-type deities that were restricted to a particular geographical location. So Jonah informs them, the God that I worship and am running from, this God is not like your puny little false gods. No, this God is everywhere present. This is the creator God of the universe. This is a God that you can run from, but you cannot hide. And the Bible says they then responded in verse 10 with great fear and said, what is this that you have done? A Danny Aiken paraphrase would be, what in the rip were you thinking? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of Yahweh, the God who made the heavens, the sea, and the dry land. So they again uh, interrogate Jonah and they ask him, what shall we do to you? Verse 11 that the sea may quiet down for us. The sea grew more and more tempestuous, and very honestly, he says to them, well, pick me up, throw me, hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest 
has come upon you. Well, evidently, they appreciated Jonah's honesty. And so the Bible says in verse 13, they rode hard, trying to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. And so this is what they do. They called out. Same word we saw in verse 2 and again in verse 6. They called out to Yahweh, and here's their prayer. O Lord, O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Yahweh, you have done as it pleased you. And so they picked up Jonah. They hurled him into the sea, and sure enough, the sea ceased from its raging. And what did the men do? Now, there's a debate here. If you read commentaries on the book of Jonah, there'll always be the question raised, were the mariners, were these sailors, were these pagan Gentiles truly and genuinely converted? And there's some who say, well, no. Uh, Yeah, they uh, acted in some degree of reverence out of fear because of what was happening to them, but they were not truly and genuinely converted. But I strongly disagree. First of all, they refer to God in His covenantal name, Yahweh. And secondly, what they do are clear evidences of a broken and contrite and repentant heart. In some ways, they are precursors to what we will see in just a moment in chapter 3 with the people of Nineveh. They feared Yahweh, verse 16, exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, to Yahweh, and they made vows. And they understand, as Jonah is understanding, you can run, but you cannot hide from God. By the way, running from the Lord is not always something you do physically. I think for most of us, running from the Lord is something we do in our hearts and in our minds. I will tell you, I've lived long enough to know that many times in a church, people who show up every Sunday, they're running from the Lord. The Lord is pursuing them like the hound of heaven. The Lord has a particular calling upon their life. God wants to accomplish something in them and through them, and yet they run. Well, I've discovered that even in a seminary, people can show up, saying they're there to be trained for vocational ministry, and yet they are running from the Lord. They kind of are like this, like many of us. You know, God, I'll be glad to serve you on my terms. I'll be glad to serve you as long as it's in a place that I want to go. And it's amazing how often when God gets a hold of our hearts, He sends us exactly to the place we thought we would never go, but now we could only delight in going there. And the bottom line for all of us this morning is, I don't care who you are. I don't care how fast you are. You can run, but you cannot hide from the Lord. Truth number two, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. Actually, verse 17 goes better with chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And let me just make a couple of uh, observations about what we're about to read, and then I'm going to move through it very quickly. Number one. Jonah did know his Bible. Chapter 2 is saturated by references from the Psalms. Secondly, chapter 2 is what I call a resurrection prayer. 
As we work through it, you'll discover that if Jonah was not dead, he was on the very verge of death, and yet he recognizes God has literally resurrected him and brought him back to life out of the deliverance from the sea. Furthermore, there's often misconceptions about what exactly is going on when Jonah is swallowed by the great fish. Sometimes I've heard people say, well, you know, the Lord punished Jonah for what he had done by sending that great fish to swallow him. That's not true at all. Let me just ask you a simple question. If the great fish had not shown up and swallowed Jonah, what would have happened to Jonah? He would have drowned. So the great fish is for a number of really good reasons. Number one, Jonah's salvation. Number two, Jonah's transportation. Got to get him back to the dry land some way. And number three, Jonah's education. And I want to tell you, Jonah gets a PhD in theology in the well of the great fish. Verse 17, the Lord appointed, appointed, it never says a well, a great fish, to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, you say, stop, Danny, you, you, you've, you've dodged the big one. You've not dealt with the, with the elephant in the room yet. Do you really believe a great fish swallowed Jonah in time and space and history and then deposited him on dry land Three days later, don't you really think this is more along the lines of a parable or a mythological story? And my stalwart answer is absolutely not. Number one, in the Bible, in 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25, Jonah is noted to be a prophet of the Lord. Secondly, Nineveh was indeed a historical city. But the clincher for me in Matthew chapter 12 Verses 39 and 40, the Lord Jesus himself said and believed that Jonah was literally historically swallowed by a great fish. And here's the bottom line. If you're struggling with the issue of Jonah being swallowed by a great fish, your problem is with God and whether or not our God is a supernatural being. Secondly, in essence, you're calling Jesus either a liar or you're saying Jesus was dumb. And I find those to be grossly incompatible with also, as we saw beautifully put on display a moment ago, calling Jesus Lord. No, Jesus said that Jonah really happened. Boys and girls, that settles it for me. Well, in chapter 2, verse 1, Jonah finally does what he should have done long ago, and he prays to Yahweh, his God, from the belly of the fish. And just note the 25 personal pronouns that are wrapped together with the Psalms that Jonah cites. I'm just going to read through it and make a comment along the way. I called out to the Lord out of my distress. He answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, that is the grave, I cried, and you heard my voice. Why? Well, the Bible teaches that God disciplines those he loves, and he has disciplined Jonah in a very severe way. You cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight. And yet, even though he is as good as dead, he still has hope in his heart, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Verse 5, the water closed in over me to take my life. 
The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains, the foundations. I, I went down. Where, Jonah? To the land whose bars closed upon me forever. In other words, I was gone. I was good as dead. And yet, verse 6, you brought up my life from the pit, O Yahweh, my God. Now, if that doesn't sound like resurrection, I don't know what is. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He will die, but he will also be raised up from the pit. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. And then Jonah gets very theological in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their only hope of hesed, of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, now he sounds like the mariners back in chapter 1 and verse 7, 16, which is why, again, the parallelism there convinces me that the mariners, the sailors, were genuinely and truly converted. I will, with the voice of thanksgiving, sacrifice to you what I have vowed. Evidently, he made a promise to God in the belly of the great fish. Lord, if you'll just save me, I'll do whatever it is that you ask me to do. I will pay and then what many scholars rightly say, in my opinion, is the theme of the Bible, the end of verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. And then verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. You know, the Bible teaches us in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 13, the Lord disciplines those that he loves. And then he said, if you are without discipline, then you are probably illegitimate and not a true son. In other words, if you're here this morning and you have genuinely been converted, born again, and you belong to the Lord Jesus, he is your father. And like a good father, when you sin, he will deal with you. Now, he's a good father. He's a good father. He, he doesn't start with, you know, a heavy hand. He always starts uh, lovingly and kindly and gently. In fact, I think I could illustrate this way. When I was a little boy, uh, I loved to sit by my grandmother in church. It's not your parents? No, my grandmother. Why? Well, you all know why. Grandparents let you get away with murder. They, they just do. <clears throat> I have 14 grandchildren now, and my four sons on a regular basis will ask me, why, when we were little, and we did what you pick your grandchild did, you gave us a spanking. And when they do it, you just smile and love on them. And I said, because they're my grandchildren. And that's what grandparents do. And so when I was a little boy, I'd sit by my grandmama Aiken in church. And of course, as a little boy that was rambunctious and probably, you know, having all sorts of attention issues, I was just busy doing stuff. And for the most part, she'd let me get away with it. But even grandparents have their limits. And I can remember on a number of occasions sitting next to my grandmother when I would be doing uh, mischievous things that she would reach over and she would grab me by the leg and she would look at me and I'd look at her and she would shake her head, don't do that, which I knew, well... She's not really serious yet. 
I could still get away with some stuff for a while, and so I would continue my mischievous behavior, and then a moment later, over comes the hand, and she would squeeze a little harder, and I'd look up, and she would shake her head with a little bit more of a stern look, and I knew that time was running out, (laughs) but I had not hit the deadline yet. But then, my grandmother, I don't know why, but my grandmother loved wrestling. She loved wrestling. Now, back in those days, they didn't have all the stuff we have today, but there was a thing called Live Atlanta Wrestling. And my grandmother watched it religiously every Saturday night. And I think my grandmother had learned to perfect a particular nerve hold that would bring any opponent into immediate submission because after a little bit longer, suddenly this arm came around grabbed me right there and began to clamp down and I looked and now it was like the party's over you're going to stop or your life is about to come to an end and I knew playtime for Danny had come to an end now here's my point God is a good father and yes he will tap you on the leg he might even squeeze it a little bit but he loves you too much to let you make an idiot of yourself He loves you too much to let you continue in your sin. And that arm will come around, and it will clamp that nerve. And if necessary, he'll even throw you into the depths of the sea to get your attention because he's a good father. And not only for unbelievers, but for believers as well, salvation is of the Lord. Now, number three, closely related to that theme. Our God is the God of the second chance. Our God is the God of the second chance. Chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, same thing as in chapter 1, verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And now in verse 3 of chapter 3, we read what we should have read in chapter 1, verse 3, Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. In fact, it would take you three days to, uh, I think what the text means is to go strategically to the key preaching points that you would go to in that particular day in that context. So, Jonah, verse 4, began to go into the city one day in, and he began to call out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And verse 5 of chapter 3 is one of the most amazing verses in all of the Bible. The people of Nineveh believed God. That word believed is the Hebrew word amen. The people of Nineveh said, amen. We believe. We agree. We trust in the Lord. And they called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them, which is explained in detail in verses 6 through verse 9, and just drop down to verse 10. And when the Lord saw what they did, he turned, that they had turned from their evil way, the Lord relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And you have recorded in Jonah chapter 3, perhaps... The greatest revival in all of human history when an entire city repented and believed and turned to the one true and living God. And the Ninevites learned, like Jonah was learning, 
Our God is the God of the second chance. Let me just say this personally this morning. Aren't you glad that God is the God of the second chance? And the third chance? And the fourth chance? And the fifth chance? Now let me be clear. You should never presume that God will continue to give you more and more and more chances. But that is His nature because He is a wonderful, faithful God of grace. In fact, I find this often interesting. This is the only time I'll ask for audience participation because I don't like doing that, but I just want to ask a question this morning. Those of you that are here today that have repented of your sin and put your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, I want to ask you this question. How many of you got saved the very first time you heard the gospel? Would you raise your hand so that I can just see the very first time you got saved? All right, I see one hand. One hand. I didn't. In fact, I quite uh, am quite certain it was probably the 100th, 200th, 300th time that I had heard the gospel growing up like the testimonies we heard earlier today in the church, being there all my life, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, because my mother sang in the choir. And I heard the gospel over and over and over in church and over and over and over in, home, in the home. And yet it wasn't until I was 10 years of age that I repented of my sin and put my faith and trust in Christ. And I want to tell you something. I'm glad that God didn't say from heaven, Danny Aiken gets one shot at salvation and that's all. No, our God is a good God and he is the God of the second chance. But then number four. Lost people matter to God, and lost people ought to matter to you and to me. Now, we would think that in chapter 4, we would read about the most glorious celebration you've ever seen in terms of seeing people come to faith in the one true living God, but that's not what we read at all. Verse 4, verse 1 of chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah greatly, exceedingly. He was ticked off. He was angry. So he prays, and he prayed to the Lord this prayer. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? Now, evidently, there was a conversation between God and Jonah that took place back in chapter 1 that God doesn't reveal to us. But I think it's easy to figure out what took place. God went to Jonah and said, Jonah, I've got a job for you. Well, what is it, Lord? I want you to arise, go and preach against uh, the Ninevites. Because they're exceedingly wicked, and if they don't repent, I'm going to wipe them out. And Jonah scratches his head and says, well, God, that's not, that's not really what I would like to, to see happen. And I, I, plus, I know what you're like. And he's going to quote from Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6. I know what you're like. And, I, and he, brought out, he said, I brought it up. That's why I ran to Tarsus, because I knew that you are a gracious God, that you are a merciful God, that you are a slow to anger God, and that you're an abounding and steadfast love God, and that you will turn from disaster when people repent. And I don't want the Ninevites to repent. In fact, it would make me really happy if you would wipe them from the face of the earth. And therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And I'll tell you something, if I were God, I'd have answered that prayer in verse 3. I'd have killed him. 
I mean, I can find a dozen prophets. I'd be sick and tired by now of putting up with Jonah. That, that's me, but praise the Lord, that's not our God. And so he just kind of says, Jonah, look at yourself. Look at yourself. Do a little self-examination. Do you do well to be angry? Well, the narrative continues and comes to a close. Jonah went out of the city, verse 5, set to the east of the city, and he made himself a booth uh, so that he could sit under it in the shade till he would see what would become of the city. Now, either one, he's hoping that God will change his mind and line his will up with Jonah's. That's the whole sermon in and of itself. Or he's hoping that the Ninevites will quickly fall away and that God will still wipe them out. And by the way, they did eventually fall away. The book of Nahum is all about the destruction of Nineveh and Assyria. But that would be almost a hundred years later. So Jonah is out there checking things out to see what might happen now. God begins to get really active in the most. In fact, somebody needs to make a movie out of the book of Jonah because the end of it would be gut-busting hilarious. Because verse 6, the Lord appointed a plant, made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save, there's that word interestingly, to save him from his discomfort. And Jonah, now you ought to mark this, because it is the only time in the book that Jonah is said to be happy. Jonah was exceedingly happy because of a plant. I mean, are you kidding me? Jonah, are you happy that God delivered you from drowning? Well, that was a long time ago. Well, not really, but... And Jonah, are you glad that the Ninevites have been converted? No. Well, Jonah, what makes you happy? My comfort. My comfort. And I'm happy I have a shade tree to keep me from being incredibly and exceedingly and uncomfortably hot. Well, verse 7. When dawn came up the next morning. Now, God is the hero of Jonah. But if you were to ask me, well, who's the next hero? My vote would be for a worm. God appointed a worm. It attacked the plant. And it withered. Not only that. When the sun arose, God appointed a Sirocco, a scorching east wind. Now, I did a little research on the Sirocco. They say that that wind sometimes can hit 50 to 60 miles an hour. It is a very high, uh, hot, dry heat that, of course, stirs up the sand. Uh, yeah, people would die, and sometimes people who survived would go insane. The, the, the pain and the torment was so great. So God sends a scorching east wind, and not only that, the sun now begins to box Jonah's head, beat down on Jonah's head so that he's about to faint. And so once more he prays, and he asks that he might die, and he says, it is better for me to die than to live. But again, God is gracious, and so God says to Jonah, Jonah, can we talk for a moment? Do, do, do you do well to be upset for a plant? And he says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. We would say today, I'm so mad I could die. And the Lord says, well, Jonah, let's just do a little inventory. You pity a plant. Now, let's think about that. You didn't labor for it. You didn't make it grow. Came into being in a night and perished in a night. I'm pretty sure that we get our colloquial saying, 
here today, gone tomorrow from this particular truth. And he says in verse 11, And Jonah, should I not pity Nineveh? It's a great city. In fact, there are probably more than 120,000 persons, probably referring to the adult population. And Jonah, they've been so far removed from me and my truth. They hardly know their right hand from their left. And furthermore, my creation is there, represented by much cattle. And guess what? The book ends. And we're left with that question hanging in the air. Why? Well, I think the reason is that God not only wanted Jonah to answer that question, God wants you and me to answer that question as well. Because isn't it easy for all of us to get so comfortable that we drift away from and get distracted from what really matters to God and what is most important to Him? Now, I always ask, and I'm sure you're asking as well, do you think Jonah got the message? Well, the book is in the Bible, isn't it? And I strongly suspect that finally, after much pain and much suffering, Jonah came to the realization that we need to realize this morning as well. Lost people really do matter to God. And lost people ought to matter to you and to me as well. John Falconer was an unbelievably gifted individual, born into wealth as an aristocrat in Great England, taught at Cambridge, was a world champion, champion cyclist, and yet God got a hold of his heart and he left all of that to go to Yemen to be a missionary. And again, in God's mysterious providence, God took him at the age of 30. He died in Yemen and he is buried in Yemen. And yet John Falconer said this, I have but one candle of life to burn and I would rather burn it out in a land filled with darkness than in a land flooded with light. Lost people do matter to our God. Brothers and sisters, they should matter to us too. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this marvelous story. Most of us have heard this story many, many times since we were little. And yet, Lord, it is a powerful little book that reminds us of a very critical truth in our lives. Our God is a missionary God. And lost people matter to you, and therefore they should matter to us. And so, dear Lord, may we seek to have the heart of our God. May we seek to draw near to the heart of Jesus and be missionary-minded and missionary-passionate and missionary-consumed that we might be about the business that matters most to you for our good, yes, but ultimately for the good of the nations and for your glory. We ask and we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.